What's up, Johnnies? We are back with another episode of Storm Chasers. Today is another episode in our series called Student versus Professor Perspective, the third one in our series, actually. And today I actually have a very special guest with me, um, Professor Kenny. I'm sure a lot of you are familiar with him or maybe even taken his classes. Um, thank you for joining us. Oh, and you're, you're welcome. Thanks for inviting me. And I'll sort of let you introduce yourself to the listeners. Sure. Um, well, my name is Professor Joseph Kenny, and um, I'm a faculty member at, at uh, St. John's University. Um, and uh, I teach business law is my primary uh, area of uh, instruction. And I also teach a number of, of uh, law-related elective courses as well, uh, hospitality law, sport law, and... Um, there was even a time when I taught communication law for, for your program. Nice. Um, so typically how this series works is I start off by sort of talking about professors' academic background because, you know, sometimes it may seem a little daunting to, stu to students, you know, what it, they don't know what it's like to be a professor or a teacher. But, you know, we forget to realize that Educators have been in our position once before, so yes. I love doing this series to sort of get the backstory on all that and see how, you know, your experience with academics, education has sort of changed over the years mm. and helped you become the professor that you are today. Sure. So to start off, um, let's talk about your experience as an undergrad in college. Sure. Where did you go? Mm. What did you major and minor in? And what was that experience like for you as a student? Sure. Well, um, I uh, first of all, I, I grew up in Brooklyn, and I attended Zavarian High School in Brooklyn in Bay Ridge. And upon graduation, I enrolled in Lemoyne College, which is in Syracuse, New York. <clears throat> Lemoyne College is a, a small Jesuit college, and um, and I I loved it. I, I had a great time. I uh, I majored in. Uh, my goal in going there was to be a teacher. Uh, I knew going into college that I wanted to be a teacher, and I majored actually in modern languages, Spanish, and minored in uh, social sciences and education, and the result being that when I came out of um, Le Moyne, I was a New York State certified teacher in Spanish and in social studies for, for high school students, and um, and so that was the goal in being there, and uh, it was it was a terrific experience. I enjoyed it. Ah, wow, that's really interesting. Yeah. Um, so at what point, did were you a teacher after graduating? Did you continue for a master's in education or? Well, here's what happened. Um, I graduated in uh, the mid-1970s, and our country and our state in particular and our city of New York were all in um, a bit of a, a recession. And in fact, the city of New York was laying off teachers. It was tough to get any civil service job, including teaching. And um, so at that point, I was not quite sure what to do with myself, and I had an opportunity to, uh, to pursue law school, and, and I did. Um, I did student teaching, and uh, I never did, if you will, uh, true high school teaching, um, other than my student teaching experience. So that, that's where I, I went to from with that, and from there, I, I went to uh, I went directly out of college into St. John's University Law School in Queens, um, and uh, and that was that was a very demanding academic environment. You know, <clears throat> one of the, one of my jobs on campus is I'm the pre-law advisor, one of a number of pre-law advisors, and one of the descriptions I use of law school is that it's academic boot camp, uh, comparing it to to people who enter the military and have to go through a very rigorous physical uh, and and mental uh, program before they're actually taken into the military. And academically, certainly the first semester and the first year of law school, you know, could be characterized that way. Yeah. How would you say, well, when you were an undergrad, were you involved in a lot of extracurricular activities, clubs, things of that sort? Yes, I was. Um, well, uh, probably the, consistently the, the thing that I did was I was active in uh, the theater group at at Lemoyne, both acting and I directed a play, and um, I did that 
just about every semester to, that I was there, except for my very last semester, which was uh, my student teaching semester. And that itself was a very demanding academic experience, being a student teacher. But yes, uh, the theater groups and uh, and also um, I one of the the settings that I lived in was it was called uh, International House. It was a sort of an on-campus Christian community, and and I was active in that as well. What would you say are the main differences between different levels of education, such as undergrad and law school? I know you said it's very rigorous in terms of like yes the academic <clears throat> material. Well, probably the the biggest difference I would look at is that. You know, uh, undergraduate is very much about formation of the character and uh, and developing the talents that each of us bring to, to academia uh, and also social development. And uh, graduate school and law school, while those are all present elements, they really take a, a backseat to the professional development of, of the the program, you know, why are you there? Uh, so, law school was um, it was a real academic program that that required, if you will, sacrificing so many uh, social things for the benefit of of developing one's professional abilities. Yeah, law school is also three years. I've heard. Right? That's right. It's three years full time, and many schools offer a four year part time program as well. But I did the three years full time. Okay. And um, I get, well, one question that I've always had about this legal studies field, and I've heard these terms thrown around, what's the difference between being pre-law, a legal studies major, or legal law major and legal studies minor? Yes. Well, here's the thing. Truly, there is no academic major called pre-law. Pre-law is really a course of guidance as opposed to an academic major. Um, certainly, people who have an interest in law enroll in courses about it. <clears throat> excuse me, and they uh, they develop their interest, or sometimes even learn that this is not what they're interested in. That's a very valuable lesson as well. So, if you're a legal studies major, what you're really doing is introducing yourself to the law and preparing yourself for a career in the field. Though it may be as a lawyer. It might, might be in another role within our legal system. There's just so many roles, whether it be uh, administration of courts or uh, collateral or ancillary functions that courts serve, like supervision of the caseload and the people who are involved in it in different circumstances. So, uh, so there are many roles that legal studies majors can prepare for, not just as lawyers, but though many of them, you know, being a lawyer is so prominent in in media and in entertainment, but the legal studies major actually uh, prepares students not just for the potential of becoming a lawyer, but also for many of the ancillary fields that that law embraces. So let's say someone was interested in not necessarily being a lawyer, but maybe a paralegal, that might be a good option for them? Yeah, legal assistant or paralegal, absolutely. It's uh, it's one of the preparations that, that are certainly available. Uh, you know, as it happens, the American Bar Association, the same organization that accredits law schools, also accredits uh, legal assistant and paralegal programs. And um, the thing is, there are many colleges and universities and even trade-oriented schools that offer this course of studies, but not all of them are ABA accredited. And our program at St. John's is ABA accredited. It really speaks well for... Um, for having been reviewed for preparation, for uh, compliance with ethical and and substantive fields. And uh, so I guess what I want to say is I feel so good about our university and its, its standing in this field, you know, being preparing legal assistance and having that ABA accreditation. Yeah. Okay. So legal studies major is a major within itself yes. to learn about the law and then being pre-law isn't a major itself. It's something that can be accompanied by any major, really, like someone that's like pre-med or something like that. Oh, absolutely. By the way, it doesn't require a legal studies major to go to law school. Law schools look for majors in every field. As, as I said, I was a, a language major, and I, I went to law school. Um, 
the key really is that you uh, you know that you recognize the level of of um, commitment and persistence it takes to succeed in the field, not just through law school, but but in the field itself. You know, the career itself continues to be a demanding, demanding life after graduation from law school. Yeah, I feel like that's a major misconception is that, you know, to go to law school, you need to be like a legal studies major or a political science major Not or at something all. like that. Not at all. Any, any field. You have a bachelor's degree, you have the basic qualification, you know. Of course, you then have to prepare for the other elements of the application process. The, the LSAT is, is the one that uh, tends to be the biggest obstacle. Well, the LSAT and the cost. <laughs> uh, law school is a very expensive proposition. Yeah. Okay. yeah, so you could be like a music or a theater major and go to law school. You know, there's no like specific major. You could just as long as having that bachelor's degree. Yes, and in fact... Uh, Music and theater, you know, in some ways really do prepare you for another element of, of serving in the law. You know, as I, I mentioned, I, I participated in a lot of theater activities as an undergrad. And, uh, and I, I found that the skills that I developed in that setting have served me well both as a lawyer and as a faculty member. Yeah, I mean, public speaking being one of them, you know, being comfortable in front of a crowd of people, you know, presenting yourself. I'm sure those are just some of the qualities that you could gain from having those previous experiences or educational background. Yes, and even being effective when you are nervous in front of crowds. (laughs) It's, uh, it, it, it does develop that skill, yeah. And would you say having your educational background, you know, preparing to be a teacher, would you say that offered you a unique um, perspective when going to law school and being a lawyer versus someone else who may have just majored in like legal studies or political science? I, I clearly think it did, it, it did and it does um, in the sense that, um, you know, there weren't a lot of people with my background in law school and, um, and what it allowed me to see is that the skills I brought, while they weren't unique, not everybody had them. The ability to, uh, to speak to a, a room to prepare, if you will, a, a goal and a, a lesson, if you will, and uh, to present it in such a way as people can understand it. Um, it really was a, a useful skill to develop as, as an education uh, student and then to bring it to the legal setting, yeah. And it still, it still works for me in, in dealing with, uh, with people in legal matters. Right. And now when it comes to being a lawyer, yeah. there, you know, it's not just being a lawyer. There's specific types of lawyers, I guess you could say, right? Well, there are many subsets within the law. There are many subsets of, of uh, types of law that people can, can practice. And, um, and there are different settings in which lawyers operate. And, you know, what, what media doesn't do for the typical high school and college student is show them all of the many different ways that lawyers serve and uh, it, it would probably be useful for students to recognize that, that, uh, you know, it, it doesn't take the, uh, you know, the, the high-profile litigator to be a lawyer. And, in fact, very few lawyers serve in that role comparative to the number of lawyers that there are. No, honestly, I feel like you're 100% right on that because when in high school or whatever and they tell you about these potential career fields that you could do and law came up, I feel like they always just pictured, you know, someone in a courtroom, you know, you have to be this major and you have to do this. They never, they just talked about you being a lawyer point blank period. They never explained that you could be any major, that there's different types of laws. And I feel like going more in depth with that or at least explaining that might be more helpful to people who don't know all of this or they're just introducing it to people who could potentially be interested in that. Sure. The, the other part of, of certainly the media approach to portraying lawyers is uh, is having to do with criminal law that, you know, very often they focus on lawyers who are involved in, in you know, high-profile criminal matters when, in fact, most lawyers are not involved in criminal work. They're involved in, if you will, the, the other side of it is what we, in a generic sense, call civil work. And there are just so many subsets within civil work itself. It just invites every personality type, whether you are an extrovert or an introvert, whether you're a public speaker or a very reserved speaker. Uh, there's, there's plenty of room in the law for the skills that, that each student and each lawyer brings to the field. And would you say some people, because I know this isn't a requirement, but 
some people go to law school with a bachelor's and a master's. Some people go with just the bachelor's. You know, people have those like different educational levels behind them. Yeah, <clears throat> certainly there are many students who, who enroll in law school already having a graduate degree. Typically, it would be a master's degree. Occasionally, you see a student with a, a doctoral degree of some kind, uh, whether it be a PhD or an EDD. Uh, but most often, the graduate degrees you see are master's degrees, though even those are not common. They're, they're not rare, but they're not common either. You know, if you, if, I don't know the number, but if somebody said to me, oh, 15% of all law students have an advanced degree, uh, I wouldn't, that wouldn't surprise me. You know? yeah, that's really interesting. And oh, yeah. um, I don't know all of the different subsets of law, sure. all of them, but I know some of them are like, you know, maybe entertainment lawyers or something of that. Would you, and I know you mentioned sports law, would you say it could potentially be beneficial for someone to maybe be a sports management major in college and then, you know, pursue sports law? Or if someone's interested in being an entertainment lawyer, you know, be a communications major because you learn about the entertainment industry and media in and of itself. Well, well, yeah. In fact, I think I would probably recommend that to somebody who has a specific interest uh, upon graduating from law school, and that is to learn about that field. So if you want to be in communications law, you know, you might take a few legal studies classes to familiarize yourself with the topics, but what you really want to do is get to know the business that your clients have to manage so that you can help them to manage that business. So when you get to law school, let's just say entertainment law, for example, is it, would it be more so learning about general law, like the basics of it, or would those three years really be more in-depth, specifically learning the legal aspects of entertainment law, if that makes sense? Yeah, typically what you really have to do is find out how or or learn in in the the substantive areas how the, the general fields apply to that industry. So if you want to become an entertainment lawyer, by the way, just about every law school today has a course called entertainment law. But what you probably want to do is do things like talk about or learn about contract law and the law of agency, that is, you know, working for other people and representing the interest of others in the workplace, uh, and property law. And particularly what's become very important in entertainment field is intellectual property law, that is, understanding copyrights and trademarks. It's just an essential part of how the industry works and how the industry uh, monetizes the products that it it has to offer. Right. So like, I don't know if this is true, but like in law school, would you say maybe like the first year is taking more generalized classes about all different types of law and then it gets more specific to your type of law in the second or third year? Yeah, very much so. That You, you hit it right on the, the nose there. Um, the first year in just about every law school is typically all required courses, the basic courses that every lawyer has to learn about, contracts and torts, legal research and writing, which is a a very important topic, one that can be prepared for as an undergrad, uh, because we find that legal citation and legal research are a bit different than academic citation and academic research. Uh, But then as you continue through law school, you can focus more on fields that are of interest to you you know, so um, so if it were entertainment law, you would probably take an intellectual property course, an agency course, very likely a tax course, because that's just an important part of of the industry. You know, to understand how it's taxed and how it it manages that that uh, responsibility, and property courses in general. You know, because so much of of the entertainment industry is not just contracts and performers and entertainers, but also um, the values that come out of their performances as years go by and the concept of royalties and that sort of thing. Yeah. So, yeah, you know, the the third year in particular is where the student has the opportunity to choose most of their program. The first two years, not so much. Yeah, and I feel like that sort of reinforces what we mentioned about how maybe, in this case, being a communications major would help you because... You're learning a lot of the law stuff in law school, so by being a communications major, you're sort of getting that background on the industry itself. That's right. And the other part is internships. As an undergrad, 
I think they're just so valuable because, uh, first of all, they introduce you to the field. They give you a much better sense of, of what people do on a day-to-day -day basis. And it gives you an opportunity to measure yourself in that setting. Is this something that I'm comfortable with or something that I want to do? So, yeah, if, if you can do an internship as an undergrad. And then, as a law student, also do an internship in that field in a legal setting. It's such a useful preparation. So, again, I'm just using the communications entertainment because sure. that's what I'm most familiar with. But um, so would you say maybe as an undergrad, just do a communications type internship to get a feel for the industry itself and then maybe in law school and like a more entertainment law based internship so you get like both sides? I think that's a, a terrific strategy. What I really recommend is the undergrad in the field where you get to know how the field works, not necessarily the legal side of it, but how the field itself works. Mm -hmm. And then if you can do an internship as a law student in a field where you're more exposed to the legal aspects of the field, then yeah, that I think that serves you real well. And would you, um, so let's say for someone that's not a legal studies major, would you recommend maybe taking some legal studies courses as like electives just to prepare them for the LSAT? Because I'm not sure exactly what concepts they're tested on, but I'm assuming they, ha they have to know those concepts and pass the test to get into law school. Well, an interesting thing about the LSAT is, is that it doesn't test any substantive field. You don't have to know a word of law. Oh, really? It, re really. It, it's really more about um, cognitive skills and um, reading comprehension, uh, analytical reasoning, and, uh, and then, if you will, doing that very well uh, in bursts of time. And the LSAT typically has four sections where each section is 35 minutes long and you must finish 25 or so questions. And that's real difficult because um, I think most people could do well if they had an unlimited amount of time. But if you could do it in that, if you have to do it in 25 minutes, or rather in 35 minutes, you know, that can be tough. That can be tough. And that takes practice more than, more than study. It's practice for the LSAT. So what are the four sections for the test? It's reading? Uh, there's actually three sections, oh, three sections. But every test has four sections where one of the, the three sections is repeated twice. Oh, reading okay. comprehension, logical reasoning, and analytical reasoning, uh, sometimes called a games section. And, um, and they test different intuitive and cognitive skills more than they test. Th there's no test regarding a field of law. You know, they're not asking anything about what laws exist or the structures of the, the legal system. It's, it's very much, you know, general knowledge questions that are designed to test uh, these skills of reading, analysis, and logic. Wow, that's really interesting to hear. I would, again, I feel like no one really, at least in high school, they don't really mention these things. When you think of the LSAT, you think like you need to know all these legal terms, which I guess doesn't make sense in a way because you're, you're going to learn that in law school, right. the test to get into law school. But it sounds very similar to the SAT, which is what you would use to get into college because that's what they test on, you know, math, reading, I believe... SHSAT, which had like a, log a logic section at one point. So it yes. sounds very similar to those examinations. Yeah, the, the, SA, the LSAT does not test math per se, mm -hmm. but they test mathematical in intuition in the sense that uh, can you recognize inclusive and exclusive categories? And in doing so, much like mathematics, you know, numbers create inclusive and exclusive categories. Uh, if you can estimate, for instance, you're halfway there in mathematics. But in the LSAT, uh, it's to the extent that mathematics is about logic. You okay. know, that, that's really the only role that math plays. And what's the scale on the LSAT, the lowest and the highest that you could Sure, the, the scale runs from uh, numerically from 120 to 180. Okay. About a 152 or so is the median. And um, <clears throat> while the numbers are very important, it's important to recognize that each number has a percentile rank among all test takers. So, for instance, if you have a 180, the highest score, that means you scored in the top 99% of all test takers. 99% of people did, didn't do as well as you. Uh, and if you score at about the 152 level, you're at about the 50th percentile, where 50% of the people do better and 50% of the people do worse. And recognize that uh, among the many law schools 
in the country, about 200 or so. And among the 13 of them that are in our New York City metropolitan area, the greater metropolitan area, you know, there are law schools that have very demanding requirements for LSAT numbers. And there are law schools that have, you know, more forgiving admissions requirements on the LSAT. So I don't want to say there's room for everybody, but there's probably more room than, than the, the typical undergraduate understands from just hearing the sort of the banter around the, the cafeteria. Yeah, no, definitely, because th- you just told me a lot of stuff that I didn't uh, even know. Sure. And, um, and so law school is, uh, is certainly achievable. Uh, the next question is, you know, is it right for you? And, you know, sadly or unfortunately, you know, can you afford to do it? Because it's a, it's a very um, expensive proposition. And I, I have to tell you, the one thing that troubles me the most is, you know, hearing from an alumnus who has now graduated from law school and is out two or three years and says, you know, this is really not for me. And yet they've made such a financial investment that it's very difficult to pursue something else and still maintain payment on their their loans. At that point, would you maybe suggest um, teaching law, like working in academia, since they have that educational background? Well, that's certainly one option. Uh, The other thing is that, you know, uh, having that degree, the Juris Doctor degree, the degree that one uh, is awarded when they graduate from law school, it really gives you uh, some credibility in many fields, you know, not just law, but education. Uh, Certainly the business field, generally speaking, in a broad sense, there are many people who have a Juris Doctor degree who, who are in the business world. And use that as the primary place for, for, uh, for their education. And then there are just so many people who also function in not-for-profit settings, and not necessarily directly legal, but not-for-profit settings where, particularly in leadership roles, where having a, an understanding of our legal system is, is just very valuable to, you know, to directing that organization. You know, whether it be uh, an educational institution or some sort of social welfare setting, uh, a lot of lawyers do that. Right. Yeah, I could definitely see numerous places where having that background, you know, being knowledgeable about the law could help you. I mean, even oh, yeah. in my, I'm, like, as a communication arts major on a media management track, I've taken two, I guess, law classes. Yes. I've taken your business law class. Right. And then I've also taken a communication law class. I believe it's called Law of Public Communication. And they both cover like the same topics, you know. We talked about like libel and defamation, yes. copyright. We talked about like um, it sort of pertains to like entertainment law, you know, advertisements, journalism, the music industry with like copywriting and trademarking and all of that. So it yeah. was very interesting to learn that little bit about the law in and of itself. Oh yeah, sure. Well, one of the things about law is I found that it, it's never boring. It's never ever boring. It's been an interesting field, and you personally, I've always found that I'm doing something worthwhile. You know that I never feel like I'm in a a job that's not ful- fulfilling. Me sounds kind of trite to say it, but I feel good about being a lawyer. You know, and I I feel like I'm doing something worthwhile, and I'm helping people, and um, and I'm making a living doing it. Right, and even if you don't go to law school, you know, I mean, I would recommend someone that's let's say a sports management major just take a sports law class, just because one, I mean, I personally find it interesting, and yeah, sure. two, it relates to your field. You know, right. it's good knowledge to have, even if you don't plan on working in the legal aspect of that field. It's still good knowledge to have moving forward. I would think. Absolutely yes, absolutely yes, and in fact, I think in our sport management major, the sport law class is a requirement, just as it is. I think. In the communications field, if it's not a requirement, it's one of a number of courses that satisfy the you know, a, yeah. um, a required set of courses. I believe, I'm not sure, because in communications, there's like four tracks. So right. there's the media management track, media studies, and then there's like two others. I can't remember the name, but the media management one is the only one you can fully complete on the Staten Island campus. Right. And that's the one that where more of the businessy type class, I guess you could say, are required. So the business law, the comm law, because yes. I guess, you know, media management, they want you to have a little bit of that knowledge, even if you don't plan on 
you know, going into the law aspect of communications, just having that knowledge and like a business aspect or management aspect, they feel it's important for you to have, which I definitely see. So I could see that for other majors too. And by the way, not only, if you will, the courses, but the co-curricular and extracurricular activities in your field, this setting is just huge, isn't it? I mean, to, to be able to to practice what you've learned in the classroom and uh, the, if you will, the practical skills that that test those things that you've learned. It's just terrific to have a setting like you have here to, uh, to, to bring those out. Yeah, that's one thing I love about being part of the bowl is I get to really put the skills that you learn in the classroom to use. Because I think communications is a very hands-on major to begin with. You yes. know, we don't really have tests like other majors do majorly a lot of our field is hands-on because it's practice for what you'd be doing in the field which right. i think is more <clears throat> beneficial so sure instead of having a final exam maybe we'd write like a final news article or shoot a final short film you know right. it's more project based i feel like or maybe essays yes but personally i like the project aspect of it because i don't know i feel like i learn more that way i'm not the greatest test taker but i don't know it just sticks with me and it's just you know, it doesn't go in, in one ear and out the other. You know, it sticks with you. It's actual practice for what you could potentially be doing once you graduate, which is what I like. Courtney, you know, I have to tell you a story. As, um, over the, the years of teaching, communication majors have, on a number of occasions, done a class presentation using other than the traditional case brief method. Uh, there have been an, uh, just a number of uh, students who have, have dramatized a case, taken a case out of the textbook, and then turn it into a, I guess, a storyboard, and then a script, and then filmed it and presented it to the class. And they're really highlights. I, I think of uh, a number of them. I think of Anthony Padovano, who's I think he's a faculty member among us, uh, an adjunct. Oh, Padovano. Yes, Padawano. I have him as a professor this semester, actually. Oh, yes. yes. Uh, well, ask him to show you his, uh, his McDonald's drive through video that he did for my class. Um, Let's see, Roy Garlisi, uh, who is an alumnus from the early 90s, who has just done so well in our field. But uh, he was, as I recall, the first in my teaching at St. John's to do a case presentation, then on videotape, as opposed to, of course, now that all the other different means of doing so. And the uh, the feather on the lens guys. Fuzz on the lens. Fuzz I was the just lens. talking to him last week, and they brought you up, actually. Oh, is that right? But yeah, they said they did like a film for their class instead of a ca- like a case yeah. brief, and you were actually in it. Oh, that was terrible. But but that <laughs> said, the video was great, and just you know the fun, the camaraderie of doing it. You know, it it just lends so much to to my experience as a faculty member and just being around uh, my students in the you know outside the classroom. I, I love it. You know. Yeah, it's so interesting to hear you say that because I feel like that's a common thread that we see, you know, TV, film, or communications majors. We often, like, if we can, you know, ask, hey, can we do this project in the form of a film or a video? Just because, you know, we're good at that and we're still learning the material either way. Yes. So. Not only learning it, but but practicing it in a way Mm -hmm. that's just so relevant to your field, you know. And and the, the fun that you recognize going on in the course of the production you know, it's it's wonderful. You know, it's 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 just delightful. It really is. Yeah, and I'm so glad to hear that. Like, you're flexible in terms of allowing students to do that. Very flexible. <laughs> yeah, I'm very flexible. How would you say that um, you formed your teaching style as a professor? Oh, that's an interesting one. Um, well, again, my desire to be a, a teacher and a classroom teacher it struck me very early in life. I, I mean. Earlier than, you know, throughout high school, I knew this is what I wanted to do, and throughout college, uh, you think of all the people who changed their majors. Not once. I knew just what I wanted to do. I'm very lucky that way. And I think some of the things that have really um, affected or, or, or shaped the way that I teach in the classroom have to do with my time in the theater at, uh, at Le Moyne, where I really uh, gained... Not a comfort level, I think that's too too strong, but rather an ability to manage my my anxiety, you know, appearing in that setting. And also organizing material. One of the things you learn in the education classes and in the teaching classes is the level of preparation 
and organization that it takes to be an effective teacher. And, um, and that really helped in what I've become now. And the other part is just becoming comfortable enough with your students and confident enough in your students that you can, um, you can enjoy their company. I mean, certainly we have academic goals and we have achievement goals, but we also have a, a development and a formation that's going on. And to enjoy that in the company of my students has really been such an important part, of, I think, of how I present myself in the classroom and how I interact with my students. Right. And now moving on from your experience as a student yes. to now a professor. Yes. I mean, I feel like we sort of already touched on this as to why you decided to become a professor. But would you say in a sense that everything came full circle? You know, you originally set out to be a teacher, then you went to law school, pursued a career in law. And now here you are teaching law. You know, you're back in a teaching setting. Yeah, Courtney, about uh, about once a day I pinch myself at how fortunate, how lucky I have been with, uh, with just of all, first of all, everything in my life is just, you know, I'm, I'm very grateful for, for where I am, but my teaching and my association with St. John's ha- have just been nothing, nothing short of wonderful. I got to tell you, I, I just feel so fortunate, you know, that, um, that when I first got out of law school, um, still the education field was pretty tight and I started practicing law. But the bug to teach never, never left. And almost immediately, I started teaching as an adjunct in different places. And, um, and it was really through that that I was invited to be an adjunct at St. John's in 1989 here in Staten Island. And just fortuitously, again, like just dumb luck struck and, and hit Kenny again, I got to <laughs> tell you, um, where they said, oh, suddenly about, it was literally about two weeks before the semester began in the, the fall of 1989, and I was scheduled to teach an adjunct class on campus here. And I, they said, we suddenly have a, a full-time opening. We need somebody to start September 1st. Are you available? Are you willing? And um, I had to rearrange so many parts of my life and with the help of my, uh, my law colleague with whom I was practicing, and certainly my wife and kids, uh, it was only one kid at the time, but um, we made it work, and it has just been, just been a terrific uh, life and career here at St. John's since then. Um, and St. John's has allowed me to develop as a faculty member and as a lawyer, because I've been encouraged throughout this time. Bearing in mind when I started here, I was only a lawyer about eight years. And there was so much more to develop. And St. John's encouraged me, gave me the opportunity to both teach and to practice and to bring that experience into the classroom. I'm just a very fortunate person. Yeah, they say, I believe the saying is, um, if you love what you do, you'll never have to work a day in your life. So if you have that experience, then, you know, you've made it. (laughs) Yes. And, And by the way, one of the things, the great things about teaching not as much in law, is the, uh, is the energy and the joy in the colleagues that you deal with on a daily basis. Uh, they just love what they do. And in lawyering, uh, the energy is there, but it, um, it's presented in a different way because by its nature, it's adversarial. And there's still a camaraderie there. And there's a, there's a community of lawyers that that are mutually supportive. But in the academic setting, there's just so much energy and joy in what we do. Yeah, and also the fact that, you know, you're seeing these students and you yourself remembered a few that you've crossed paths with over the years, but the fact that you're sort of entering their lives and helping them grow as individuals and mold them into who they're going to be. Yes. You know, making, being an influential figure in their life, you know, helping them decide where they want to go, what they want to do, you know, professionally. So leaving a mark on people's lives, I feel like, is another great thing that teachers and educators must experience. I agree. I agree. It, it's a real uh, responsibility, a joy, and, it, you know, it's mostly gratifying as well. I, another great story, a couple of years ago I was in court, and, um, and while I was there, we were waiting for a calendar call, 
and um, three younger lawyers came to me and and introduced themselves or reintroduced themselves to me and you know talked about their their time at St. John's and uh, and there was also an intern working for the judge who was uh, not a current student but one I'd had earlier in in that student's career at St. John's and uh, you know it was gr- it was just so gratifying it was it was a nice day. Yeah, that must be so nice, you know, seeing people that you once taught, you know, running into them, you know, seeing how their lives are doing yes. since you've last seen them. Oh, it is. It really is. It's very funny. and It's, uh, it, it's very funny in the sense that um, you, I'm thinking of another circumstance. I was in the, in the courthouse in downtown Brooklyn, and to understand the building, there's a big lobby, but above it there's a second and third floor sort of uh, terrace, and uh, as I came in the I came through the like the the security checkpoint. I hear a, a yell from like two floors up above me, Professor Kenny, and <laughs> a, a former student, and uh, and and again, you know, it's it's just a, a joyful uh, outcome of of having been here and had this opportunity. Yeah, and another question that I typically ask professors sure. um, is, what made you choose? to teach at St. John's specifically. I know you're an alumnus, you know, you went to law school here, but yes. I feel like you kind of already touched on it, you know, it allowed you to grow, you know, yes. professionally as an educator, as a lawyer, you know, all those things. Well, um, let's start with this this reality. There are very few jobs that offer this position. In other words, I don't know, I bet in the New York City area, there might be 35 of them. And that's in a huge city. And to be invited to have one of those jobs is itself both uh, a moment of good fortune, opportunity, um, yes, qualification, but there are so many people who are qualified. Again, good fortune smiled on me because St. John, St. John said, uh, you know, it was just the right moment. Opportunity was there. But that said, the other part was that they needed an adjunct on the Staten Island campus at the time, and then a full-time member at the Staten Island campus, as I've now been for 34 years. But, um, but I lived about five minutes from campus, and that was real helpful, too. Have you ever taught a class on the Queens campus? In fact, I've taught many classes on the Queens campus, um, and some of it has to do with, um, with pitching in, as in uh, if a, a class suddenly has a f- no faculty member and they need somebody to cover it. That's happened a number of times. During the pandemic, that happened when faculty members weren't able to continue because of the pandemic. Uh, there was a time when I served in an administrative role that required me to spend uh, time at the Queens campus, and I, I also taught there while I was doing that. Um, and uh, one summer, I taught summer school at the Queens campus. So I have taught there. It's a different experience. I like it. I haven't been there consistently enough to be able to see the student through four years and to grow with them that way. But I also recognize that, you know, that that that, that same process ex- exists there. Yeah, I feel like it's harder at a bigger campus. You know, yes. even campuses bigger than the one in Queens. Yes. It's hard to sort of get that connection, whereas on this campus, I commonly hear, you know, you know, the professor knows their students by name, yes. you know, they know their strengths and their weaknesses. They've seen them grow and evolve over the four years. So yes. that's one good thing about this campus is that you're able to sort of have that, you know, yes. familiarity with all of your students. Yeah, and I got to tell you, I, of course, students who are here haven't, most of them have not been in these other much larger settings. Mm-hmm. But uh, But to be able to say to them with such confidence that, this is a unique setting, and it has many benefits that you wouldn't find in another setting. Yeah, no, the, the small nature of it is one thing that I do like about this campus, especially right. coming from a smaller middle slash high school, you know, getting that sort of individualized attention, I guess, where it's like if you're ever confused on a topic, it's easy to reach out to your professor and ask them a question, you know, whereas maybe at a bigger campus, it's a little more difficult to do so. Yes, yeah, and to have that comfort level with faculty members that you've, you know, you feel a sense of, of uh, collegiality that it wouldn't be weird, you know, to, to chat with a professor. Yeah, and also among other students, too, you know, yeah. where you might just be a face 
in a class in a bigger campus setting, you know, on Staten Island, you know, you know the students a lot of times in small programs, you have like a lot of classes with the same people. So you really get to know your fellow students and peers, I guess you could say as well over the four years, which is a nice feeling to have. Absolutely. Absolutely. I sure think so. At least from the student's perspective, um, you know, just having, you know, the same classmates, you know, from every class, you know, you're all going through it together in a way. Yeah. Yeah, right, right. How would you say you handle criticisms or feedback that are made from students, you know, on, I believe they call it like teaching evaluations at the end of the semester? Sure. Well, let me start with this. I don't think I have ever received an unkind criticism. I've seen, certainly I've received criticism, uh, but I've never received mal- malice or bitterness. Uh, it's always been constructive. And, um, and so handling it says, you know, here's a concern or here's a practice that, uh, that should be reviewed, reevaluated, maybe adjusted. So, yeah, that's, that's just the purpose it serves. Um, uh, what are, one of the things I'd like students to know is that uh, these really are uh, anonymous. We don't get the very sheet or the very, there was a time when it was a piece of paper, but we, ne- we don't get the, to see what they actually indicated. We get a summary that said, you know, if you had 15 students in a class, you know, uh, eight of them said, you know, level two, and eight of them said, or seven of them said level one. Or, we get a summary. We don't get the individual. What we do get is if you write down a specific comment, that is transcribed for us, but we we never see a name. And the other thing is when do we receive it? We only receive it well after the semester ends, after grades have been submitted. So I typically tell students in class in filling out their evaluations that you can have confidence that um, that it won't be seen by me until well after grades have been submitted to the registrar's office. So have confidence that they can be candid and that it won't have any impact on, on grading, pro or con. Okay, yeah, that, that's interesting to hear. I knew they were anonymous. I didn't know when exactly the professors received them. Right. But. Yeah, typically, um, well, by the way, like this past semester, I received the fall 22 evaluations the second week of January. Okay. Well, the final question that I had for you is, what was your favorite class you ever taught or currently teach at St. John's? What's like the one class that's your favorite to teach and that you look forward to teaching? Oh, come on. That's, <laughs> that's like saying, what's your favorite chocolate? I mean, this <laughs> is, every one of them, every one of them is a joy. Well, well, every one of them gives me an opportunity to, to interact with students and to help students to develop their, their skills and their, uh, their intellect. It's difficult for me to say that, that there's one favorite it's really the opportunity to be here that is my favorite. Yeah, they're all great. How can you choose just one? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is your favorite child? Come on, <laughs> I love them all. Yeah. Um, well, that's all of the questions that I had for you. Um, is there anything that you'd like the listeners to know? You know, anything regarding law that you'd like them to know or just any questions in general? Well, that um, myself and Dr. Bongiorno on this campus serve as pre-law advisors and... Um, and please, if you have any interest in law or you don't know if you have an interest or if you just have, you know, some, uh, some real basic questions, uh, you know, one of the things about being a pre-law advisor is helping students to discern whether or not this is something they should be doing. The other thing is I also have access to a lot of materials that might help students to investigate it on their own. They may not be aware of them, but some that are just very useful in determining uh, where, what it takes, how much it takes, and um, and where these paths can lead me. Yeah. So that's what I would encourage the students to come talk to me about it. Right. Yeah. I, I'm oh. in Rosati <laughs> Hall, 104. Uh, I have a, a real nice office, and uh, and I'm very lonely over there. <laughs> come on over and visit. <laughs> Yeah, no, I I would highly recommend everyone go because, like we discussed earlier, you know, what you see on TV about lawyers and maybe what you've been told in high school, you know, might not be everything, you know, so it's nice to visit an advisor and especially if you're questioning whether or not this career f- field is for you or not, it's nice to 
talk to somebody who's knowledgeable and has been in that field themselves, you know, really get a glimpse into what this would be like and if it's truly for you or not. And we have workshops on campus typically every semester on to sort of introduce the concept and also to introduce those of us who serve as pre-law advisors just so that students know who we are. And I believe the legal studies major, they have an event that's similar, I guess, to what would be our comm connection. Yeah, every fall. Uh, it's typically the third Tuesday in, uh, in October or the fourth Tuesday in October, the fourth Tuesday in October. We have uh, legal career night. And uh, we've been doing this for years, and we, we bring in alumni who are either in law school or in, the, um, or in the field to talk to students about how they got there, what their choices were along the way. And, um, and that's really useful, and it's great to see our alumni to, to talk to them about how, how life is going for them. Right, yeah, so you heard it here, everybody. Definitely, if you're a legal studies major or if you're interested in becoming one, definitely or mark your calendars. More importantly, e- no matter what your field, you know, if you have an interest in or you're thinking about law school, you know, look me up or come to a workshop. Right, yeah, don't ever hesitate to reach out or yeah. ask for help. Yeah, or just pull me aside in the hallway. <laughs> yeah. um, well, thank you, Professor Kenny, for taking the time to join me today and also thank you for your continued support with the bowl um, as we mentioned before recording this I've heard that you've been a fan of the bulletin oh, you know sure. you're aware and it's great to hear that from professors that you know they're enjoying the content we make and right and enjoying seeing you do it you know just uh, it, it's gratifying to see students uh, doing something so productive and enjoying it right yeah the support is greatly appreciated from not only myself and the fellow eboard members but also everyone all of our members, everyone on the team. So oh, you're very welcome. Um, so thank you again for joining me, and thank you everyone for listening. If you have an episode topic that you'd like to potentially see us do, you could either email us at thebolt.sju at gmail.com, or you could DM us on Instagram at thebolt.sju. If you go to our Instagram, you'll see what a majority of our content because that is where we put it, but we also upload episodes of the bulletin to our YouTube channel. We have a website and all of those links are available on the link tree, which is in our Instagram bio. Again, that is thebolt.sju. Thank you, everyone. This is your host, Courtney, and I'll see you all next time on Storm Chasers. Bye.